the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk here on Westwood One. I, of course, am your host, Mitch LaFawn. Joining me is not one, not two, but three Johns from Bad English, The Babies, and, of course, his solo career. It is the one, the only John Waite. We talk about his Wooden Heart Acoustic Albums, Volume 1, Volume 2, and the Wooden Heart Acoustic Tour, which is in Australia, coming back to North America this summer. I highly, highly recommend it. It is an absolute good time. We also talk about John uh, sort of taking a break from the record industry and actually doing everything solo. If you head over to his John Waite Worldwide website, you will find some live albums and some other stuff that he hasn't released anywhere else, or at least initially didn't. Now you can find them on iTunes and Spotify. Absolute, absolute uh, wonderful stuff. And he explains why he sort of decided to go his own individual route rather than get record companies involved and stuff. We do ask him, of course, the burning question, will there ever be a Bad English reunion? And the answer is, you'll have to listen. And after that, because this is all John Week. Uh, In fact, I'll be seeing John Bon Jovi at the Bell Centre in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. So that's four Johns for me this week. And I interviewed Big John Hart, former bodyguard for KISS. And I'll have that at a later date. I was actually thinking of making a all-John foursome, fearsome foursome uh, episode. And then I saw the times and I thought, eh, a three, three and a half hour episode might be a little bit too much. So I'm going to keep it to these three after... Our dear John Waite, I have got John Karabi. He is, of course, in the Dead Daisies, formerly of Motley Crue. They have a new album out called Burn It Down. John also has a live um, in Nashville album where he does the entire Motley Crue 1994 album. So we talk about that, and we talk about Dean Castronovo, formerly of Journey, joining the band. And, of course, Dean was in Bad English, so... We connect those two interviews. We've got the Dean connection running through interview one and interview two. And at the end of it all, as if that wasn't enough, I have singer John Bush. He, of course, spent some time with Anthrax, and he put out some of their most vital music. The Sound of White Noise by Anthrax is one of the great thrash, metal, rock, whatever you want to call it, albums of the day. Just absolutely fabulous, fabulous stuff. Room for One More, Only, High Pro Glow, all that stuff. And we talk about, will he go out on his own and resurrect those songs? Because there's so much material and so many good songs that are just sitting on a shelf because the current Anthrax refuses to play them, which is fine. That is not a shot at Anthrax. I'm not complaining. You know, when David Lee Roth went back to Van Halen, they didn't do any of the Sammy Hager stuff. When Sammy Hager first joined Van Halen, he really didn't want to play any of the David Lee Roth stuff. That happens. And I get it, so it's not a complaint, it's not a shot, so please, if you thought that was a shot at Anthrax, it wasn't. But the point is that these songs need to be heard and performed live. Fans love them, and I'm sure the band or John would love to play them, so we talk about that. We also talk about the Armored Saint tour that is taking place this July. starts off on uh, July 10th at the Chance in Poughkeepsie, a venue that is historic and that I just recently witnessed Saxon and the Black Star Raid riders at. 
absolutely wonderful venue. They will be in Montreal on July 15th at the Petit Campus. And, of course, they will be doing all kinds of other dates, New York, Boston, Toronto, Cleveland, Detroit, etc., etc., etc. Pretty much every city where rock and roll is the beating heart of that city. So do check out the Armored Saint, Symbol of Salvation, performed live in its entirety, I believe, for the first time. Uh, One of their classic albums, so do check that out. And uh, listen, because this episode is chock full of goodness... Is it okay to say that? Is it, is it really chock full of goodness? Anyway, uh, because it is stuffed and ready to go like a Christmas turkey, I will uh, shut down the um, wonderful uh, talk-ups because, hey, you know. And we will get right into the one, the only, the baby's bad English solo missing you singer, the one, the only, John Wait. We are speaking with singer John Waite. He is doing his Wooden Heart 40th anniversary tour this year uh, all over Australia, Canada, and well, hopefully Canada and the United States. John, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thanks so much. It's nice to speak to you again. And Yes. Uh, yes. Believe wow. it or not, our last interview was 17 are, you know? years ago. <laughs> 17 years <laughs> oh, ago for the Figures in a Landscape. Know. Yep. In John Waite world, that isn't too too long, you know. I mean, I just keep slugging along, you know. I just keep touring and making records. But it's been a wonderful thing. Yeah, so I'll start with that, and we'll get into 40th. And by the way, uh, if you haven't checked out Figure in the Landscape from 2001, I loved that album. I thought it was just spectacular. It was just such a great studio album. But uh, you have been releasing albums sort of directly to iTunes, like Wooden Heart, like the uh, the live album. Uh, without going through record companies, without going through all that rigmarole, uh, talk to me about that first, about sort of taking your career and your music in hand. And um, uh, Live All Access is the the name of it that I was thinking of. Uh, Talk to me about that and sort of going on your own and just having taken ownership of everything. Funny you should say that, because I was thinking about that particular situation before. And uh, when I woke up this morning, I, I think after Bad English, I wanted to start again. Uh, I'd been in some sort of be- behemoth kind of situation uh, with a band that was aimed directly at people. It was it was like the bigger you get, the more of a business it becomes. And you, you it's like being on a ride at Magic Mountain or something. You start to let go of things and just sort of hunker down in the middle of it all and hope you come out of the side. And when Bad English split and I went back to New York, um, I'd lost complete interest in the music business. Uh, Epic had been great. Everybody at Epic, Polly Anthony, the late, great Polly Anthony, had been wonderful and would have number one records and done very well. But I was looking for something else at the end of that. I was sick of the music business on that level. I just, it just seemed redundant to me to tour and just make popular music sort of like, you know, always hoping to chart and always hoping to be in the top 20, which we had done. But I felt like I'd done it, you know. I'd done it a few times in my life. And I wanted to scale it back. And after about a year, I made Temple Bar. Now, Temple Bar was a record that was much more reflective and uh, much more singer-songwriter and the exact opposite about English. And I thought that was worth doing. 
I didn't want to sort of run off and make a record that sounded like something I just left. So that was the whole beginning of, of spending a huge amount of time in Nashville and listening to a lot more roots music like blues and Hank Williams and playing the acoustic, living in New York City. Uh, you couldn't plug in at two in the morning and wake the neighbors up. So I was playing the acoustic. I was working with Keith Reed from Prokohara and hanging out uh, in the village a lot and becoming aware of the early Dylan stuff and the kettle of fish and, and that whole kind of uh, British vanguard scene, playing those gigs with Shane Fontaine. And I, I just recreated my life completely. I started to buy back my solo albums um, and record from that point on. And uh, there was a break in the middle of that with Rough and Tumble, uh, which w was on Universal. Uh, that was very successful, uh, but, you know, relatively successful, because nowadays if you put something out and it goes number one, it doesn't mean anything. Rough and Tumble, the single, was number one on classic rock radio, and it didn't make any difference whatsoever to sales, you know. Sales were still pretty modest because everybody's downloading it and sharing it and MP3s and all that. But that was fine with me too. I just wanted to make music. But since then, I've been putting out um, albums. Some of them were direct to iTunes, and we'd sign them to the 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 website. But recently, I signed a deal with Baker Taylor, uh, and they put the the Wooden Heart album volume two and best, the greatest hits, they put them both in Target and major retailers, and we've been stepping up the touring because of that. But suddenly, once, you know, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make a record, do the album artwork, pay the band, produce it, master it, put it in the shops, and word of mouth these days is just worldwide. If somebody whispers something in New York, they hear it in London. So uh, my presence is probably bigger than it's been for 20 years and certainly uh, financially and uh, as far as the audience goes, it's all stepped up and it's just actually a watershed period. It really is. And of course, since you mentioned Worldwide, uh, I do recommend that folks go to johnwaitworldwide.com because you can get all the stuff there. Um, let me look at the the Wooden Heart Volume Two, and then we'll get into the forty year career and the babies. And it's it's just it's been a fantastic career. But uh, Wooden Heart, you, you do the songs acoustically. You do Missing You, of course, acoustically. Isn't yeah. it time by the babies and all that? Um, yeah. Just talk to me about sort of reprising these songs and giving them that new coat of paint and 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 reimagining them in a different setting because obviously they were well produced back in the day and they had all this all this stuff but now they're sort of stripped down and they're 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 I don't want to say they're more honest but they're just I, I was listening to it last night and missing you just there's an emotion to it in this version that is so palpable um, just talk to me about sort of Wooden Heart Volume Two. Well, I think Wooden Heart was was inspired by my time in Nashville really, and the, uh, the Temple Bar record coming out of New York City, working with Jeff Golub, uh, who passed a few years ago, unfortunately, but a tremendous guitar player, and Shane Fontaine, my old friend, that always seems to come up and play on the records. But, uh, you know, being in Nashville and working with Alison Krauss and playing the Opry and 
being in that place when it when it wasn't really the mecca that it is now. It's be, over the last five years, it's become extremely popular. But before that, it really truly was about bluegrass and country. And God bless it. I, I wish everyone in Nashville the most success they could possibly have. But I I sort of relearned how to put a song across. And like I said before, I, I lost interest in that huge thing that people expect from uh, my peers, you know. And I wanted to do something more original. I wanted to... I mean, when you've spent time with Larry Sparks, the bluegrass guitar player, and you, you're talking to Del McCurry backstage at the Opry, and you're talking about guitar technique with people that you've admired all your life, you st- I mean, I've never really been about big production, and I... And the more I played the songs that I loved uh, at gigs, the, the the less interested I was in in, in production. I love Free, you know, Free, the old seventies band, uh, Paul Rogers' first group. You know, I mean, you know, all right all, now, yeah, all right now, yeah, fabulous. But that was played at medium volume on when they came to play locally, and it wasn't all lights and and flashpots and stuff. It was just honest, like the blues. And that's where my roots are, the blues, Big Bill Brunsey, Howling Wolf. But with a touch of country, too, like Brenda Lee and, and the early Jim Reeves stuff and Marty Robbins, the Western songs, all of that spoke to me. And I just didn't want to hear a guitar solo that was being played at, on 11, playing the melody of the verse and the chorus. And I didn't want to be in that world. I mean, uh, it just it just leaves me cold. But the, the Wooden Heart Tour... Is me on acoustic guitar, the guitar player switching from electric to acoustic, electric bass, and a scaled-down drum kit. We play some of the big hits, full bore, and then in the middle just play me and the the uh, the guitar player just come to the mic and and solo it. But it's a joy, you know, it's a challenge. At this point in my life, I want to be challenged by what I'm doing. I don't want it to be easy. And I don't want it to be what people expect. I mean, I can't believe that people show up in droves to see some of the stuff they show up for. This is more personal, intimate, and meaningful to me. And if I could spend the rest of my life doing this, this is where I would stay. Now, we talk about uh, big production, and we, we, we talk about those songs. So let me just go to big, uh, Bad English for a second here. Um, huge band. You know, had two albums. First one spawned all these great hits. And you were talking about easy. It would be very easy for you to call up Neil, for you to call up Jonathan, and call up Dean and say, let's go do a tour. I'm sure all the cruises would, would book you. And I'm sure you could do a run of all kinds of festivals and stuff. I mean, why have you been hesitant to go back? Or why would you not want to go back? Because it really would be easy bank i mean it's easy money right and 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 the, well, the money is right. the money uh, uh, you know somebody else said that and i couldn't believe they would say they would do it for the money no no the I, money's the, I mean the money's the last thing i'm thinking about but i mean politically personally um there's stuff that i just wouldn't entertain again i've i've been there done it seen it and uh that's a world that really you know I mean, I've been in touch with Neil recently, and it was great. Uh, we, we almost played a gig together a couple of months ago. And 
he's been very keen to make a record and and do a blues record and we've been talking back and forth but uh you know the wooden heart thing is is where i'm going first okay you know and um that's really what i'm doing and neil just went back to doing a tour with journey after you know leaving journey so i mean it, i think um where things are uh, where they're meant to be really let me move on from from bad english to 40 years you've been at this for 40 years and that is absolutely to me remarkable because you having followed music for that long a lot of bands come and go and a lot of people it's it's hard to maintain a music career talk to me about how you sort of survived and and were there times where you thought oof maybe i should just go work for you know whatever daddy's company or or the 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 accountant's office were, were there were there times of struggle and how do you maintain 40 years of of the music business well um 40 years is a long time and uh, there were times like after bad English when I it was me that left, so I was regarded as some sort of black sheep, and uh, the phone stopped ringing, and I realized at that point um, I was on my own, you know, Ben Gunn, and uh, I liked it. Being independent when you really have to be independent is kind of cool, and. Um, it just worked out. I mean, it was not. I, it isn't like uh, there's a plan B. The work is in, very, very important to me. And when I look at other people's work that I regard as being really good, I, I think I can say I understand the value of it, and uh, I don't want to compete with it. And um, you know, borrow from other people. I kind of know where I'm going, and I've got my own style. But I think if you make an album and 20,000 people buy it, and they really get it, uh, or 40,000 people say. Uh, it's a lot better than making a, a record that 500,000 people buy that would buy anything. They're just looking for music, you know, to, of a certain sort. And um, it's like when I left the babies. I didn't want to sound like the babies. I could have easily put something together that would have sounded pretty much like that and gone forward. But I moved to New York City and tried to sort of like reimagine uh, a future, you know, instead of just doing the obvious thing, going forward. And the more time has passed, things have become simpler. The writing has become more specific with uh, growing up and knowing more. And my lack of interest in, in coloring the performance. At the end of the day, it's all about the performance. And um, as Van Morrison said, it's the only thing he trusts anymore about the music business. You can dress something up and you lose it. And you can keep it spartan and uh, with the lights on, you know, and that's the truth. And that's worth having and that's worth when you're successful doing that, you walk an inch taller. You actually feel like you're doing something that really means something, you know? And the other thing makes you sort of creep, creep forward. You know, you don't feel as proud of yourself or like you've done something. So that's what's maintained me is that I'm just interested in, in sort of restating something I've seen and turning into music. Talk to me about the performance because there are 
other um, wooden heart dates. That from, from what I have in front of me, they run through May. They're coming back in the States. Um, you also put out the Live All Access album, and it was pure. Yeah. It wasn't retouched. It wasn't fixed in the studio. It, it was a live... Yeah. Um, talk to me about the importance of performance and talk to me about these wooden heart shows because I know in Australia there was sort of a mix of acoustic and, uh, you know, guitar-centered, but the American ones are more acoustic shows. Um, or am I incorrect in saying no, that? No, no, okay. no, no. I think it's it's the same thing. Okay. It really is. Uh, the the all-access record yeah. and um, in real time, the two live albums that I put out, they're just like straight on three piece band um, rock albums, really. They're just like in front of a live audience, and this is what you're going to get. And uh, amazing evenings that we managed to capture on, on tape, virtual tape, you know. And that was before Wooden Heart. And Wooden Heart, I mean, the first one came out about two and a half years ago. It was an EP. Right. Yeah, 2014. I had two original. Two, yeah, I had two. I, I had two Original songs, um, the one that got away, and Magic Camera. And then there was two Richard Thompson songs I really wanted to do. And um, Withered and Died, and um, A Heart Needs a Home. And I just really wanted to sing those songs. And I, I went in the studio with Shan, and we cut the four songs. And I was talking to him about cutting four or five more songs, and he had to go and go on the road, I think, with uh, Graham Nash or something. He, he had to leave town. So I was stuck with an, e an EP, but I thought, well, this is great. I'll just put out an EP. And then we'd always done acoustic gigs. Like we did a Borders a bookstore tour about, um, I don't know, 12 years ago. And I always managed to do a couple of unplugged shows a year. But he started to speak to me more, and especially after putting out Wooden Heart, I thought, the storytellers thing became really natural. We'd stop a show in the middle and I'd tell a story. We started to play bigger gigs with it. We played the Ruth Eckerd Hall in Florida in Clearwater um, to about 2,000 people. And he brought the house down, which amazed me that you could do that with, with a scaled-down operation like that. But maybe people enjoyed that interaction with, with the singer and, and hearing where the songs came from. And we're obviously having a ball. You know, it's really great. But we do go off in the middle of the Wooden Heart tours and play full-scale rock shows at festivals, you know. So I get to do the best of both worlds. Which is great. Um, talk to me, Ben, about, the, about technology and music. Because on one sense, you can go and do Wooden Heart Volume 1 and do four songs and, and instantly get him up. I mean, sir, you, mean you, you could really literally record them in the afternoon and have them yeah. on iTunes at night. But yeah. at the same time, with technology, we sort of lost the craft of song writing and the craft of song making because we've gotten so much into, you know, uh, auto-tune and pro tools. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to me sort of about, about this dichotomy of it's magical because you can get a song done at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and have it for sale at 9 o'clock, but we've lost the spirit sometimes with, I'm going to fly yeah. this. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's a good point. Um, I think there are artists, especially now in country music, that come out with an acoustic thing that sounds like it's rocking, and it's really, you know, the, it's, it's built from the ground up. Uh, and people make product now, 
uh, easily because of the situation with technology. You can take a, a fairly mediocre singer and sort of like punch together a decent vocal. And it's a real craft, you know. Um, there was always that kind of thing in the music business from as far back as the 50s. There was people who were nice-looking human beings that weren't so greatly talented that were having their songs written for them or getting a lot of help. And there's a market for that. And then there's the artists. You know, it's the music business, not the business music. And you, there are a lot of people that are totally serious to trying to, about trying to capture... Do you know what it is? It's the conversation inside a band. It's the band speaking to each other and sometimes having a row. You know, it's, it's the drummer and the, the bass player locking and, and pulling and turning and the guitar player jumping in the middle of it all and, uh, and the singer. I mean, I try to keep all the vocals as live as possible in the studio, but um, that's the point. I think if you could hear the... If you hear that performance, and it might not be completely perfect, there is something very human about it that speaks to people. And you go back to your favorite records that you bought as a kid, and they were all done like that. So it's not a stretch, and it's not like uh, um, inventing the wheel. It's just cutting away the stuff that's happened that's made it convenient to sell records. It's taken over music, maybe. This is just a this is just a natural thing I'm doing because I love what I do and I can actually after the, all this time I'm confident enough to lead lead a band through an acoustic set or a semi-acoustic set actually and uh, win you know it, the 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 idea of failing on stage never occurs to me play to win there's no plan B yeah and and if you go back to the early records, whether it's the Beatles or Black Sabbath or any of those, yeah. it's yeah. the imperfections that make those yeah. albums so perfect. Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's, uh, I remember listening to Mr. Moonlight, John, John Lennon singing Mr. Moonlight, and he mm-hmm. goes, Mr. Moonlight, and then they all come in, and he hits this note, and, and his voice breaks, and it's the best thing in the world. I, I can remember an old girlfriend of mine uh, drinking a couple of bottles of wine and just hitting repeat on that, laying on the floor drinking wine and just listening to him sing Mr. Moonlight, his voice breaking. It's like Mary Clayton in uh, Gimme Shelter when she comes in, rape, murder, and her voice breaks. I mean, that's the stuff that keeps you awake at night. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the genuine thing. In Dylan's performances, when he was young and just you know one take dylan as soon as he finished the song he just wanted to move on and um oh man and to think now now we would be auto-tuning him you know yeah neil heart of gold what a great yeah (laughs) i mean i mean neil young after the gold rush i mean all that stuff the humanness of that is i you know that isn't even the right word but it's it's the whole point everything that, that I look to or have looked to in singers or songwriters exists in that field. The other stuff to me is still a, a kind of a mystery. I look at it and go like, what are you doing? You know, it's like so manicured. They've taken all the feel out of it, all the humanity, and then they throw synthesizers in there. And it's like, so what? You know, I just walk away from it. And to answer your question before about just 40 years and why I've 
sort of just just kept coming is that it was never on my menu of things to do to do that uh i came from an entirely different place anyway you know so i was i was experimenting like with bad english but i mean I, my my real love has always been the acoustic or stripped down rock and that and that's what i love and and i'll just finish what with with the bob dylan and stuff when you think of it now, we're not going to have artists like that 20 years down yeah. the road because they I would know. take Neil Young and Bob Dylan and they would say, ooh, we're going to have to fix that. And they would auto-tune him to death. And that spirit and that magic that is their voice and yeah. the, imper- the imperfections in their – and it's it's too bad. And it's, and it's all the bands, whether it's Ozzy or Paul Stanley or, or Robin Zand or whoever it is, they all had these moments of imperfection that moving forward, we're going to wipe from the face of the earth, and it's just like, oh, what are we doing? We're killing the. Well, that's why you, that's why people love uh, live albums. There's yes. uh, there's an Ike and Tina live album called What You See Is What You Get that I listened to when I was about 23, and um, that's the same thing. You know, Ike is a great guitar player, and Tina was at her absolute peak. You know, she was like raging, and uh, man. If you just listen to live albums, I mean, I'm into Bill Evans. You well, the real, the real live albums. Not there's a lot of live yeah. albums that are. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but it could be a live album by Bill Evans, the jazz keyboard player. It could be, it could be, uh, it could be the Rolling Stones uh, get yayas out. When I mean, there's just, it's just chaos in some ways, but but it's controlled uh, feel, um, or maybe it's not controlled. That's the wrong word for it too. Performance. You know, every time I go on stage, I sing the song differently. I can't help myself. The room's got a different uh, set of acoustics. The band's playing differently. I might be playing a different guitar. But every time I go up there, I sing it differently. And see, that's that's what it's supposed to be, though. All this stuff with backing tapes. Yeah, but but I was thinking about that today as well. People who come out and they play along to tapes, the song's going to finish in four minutes, ten seconds. You can't stretch out. You can't do anything. But, you know, if it really entertains people, that's cool, too. It's just it's not my world. And uh, I agree. when you come and see me sing those those big hits, if I didn't sing them ever so slightly differently, there'd be no performance in them. And sometimes I just go at it like it's reinventing the song. But I love to do that. And that's if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't get up and sing them. You know, I got to say, when I go to a live show, I always, the first thing I look for is a mistake. And then I feel better for the rest of the night because I go, ah, I'm, <laughs> but, but I go because I get, I'm getting a live show. I don't like yeah. leaving after two hours going, that was just way too perfect. That, I don't think that, you know, I like to know that I got a real show. And that's why going to one of your shows, which hopefully will come to Canada soon, it, I'll be the first one in line because I know that I'm getting a real show. And if there's a few warts, well, then so what? That's what a live show is. It's supposed to be that. Um, I just want to take you down uh, back to, to 1979 because I had a very personal memory. Uh, I remember I was 11 years old. We were on vacation in Florida, walking down the mall. Every time I think of you is playing through the mall. And the guy comes on and says, blah, 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 new song from the babies, blah, blah, blah. Um just talk to me a little bit about that song and the Head First album, because that was just, it was just one of those where, as a young kid, my musical awakening just sort of went, oh, I like that. I need to go check that out. Um, what was your sort of your memories of that album? Because it, it did sort of set you uh, on a path, I mean, or, or 
pushed your path forward. I mean, it, it was uh, successful, and the songs were, were, were you know. Um, what was that one like for you? Well, Head First was a tough one for the babies because we, we had uh, a guitar player had a meltdown and got, like, fired. Uh, we handed in the record. The band didn't really have a lot of ideas at that point. They really didn't. I was writing it by myself a lot. We turned in a record, um, the original Head First record, and um, nobody seemed to like it. It was great, but nobody seemed to you know. There's some really powerful songs on it. But we'd come from London, and we're thinking ahead of the curve, I think, or I was. But the record company said, no, this isn't right, and we, the guitar player had just lost it. And we, we were kind of down to a three-piece. We went back in a studio and cut four songs, uh, wrote some songs and cut four songs and put them back in the album to see what it sounded like. And we had Head First on this. I'd, since I'd called the album Head First, we got together and jammed a song together called, you know, and I called it Head First because it was going to be the lead-off track or whatever. And um, by the time that record got released, we had Head First on FM radio and Every Time I Think of You on AM radio when it still mattered to have those two uh, kind of musical stations in play. And we had it sewn up. We really did. We went on tour with some uh, major bands playing major gigs. We were playing to like at least 10,000 people a night. I stopped playing bass and, and we had two guys come in, made it a five-piece band with me. And uh, I became the singer so I could really get to the audience it was nerve-wracking, but I learned the ropes pretty fast. But that was that was the year where we we made it, and the record company was having distribution problems. It was like a, almost funny that we'd taken that amount of time to get it really by the throat and drive it home and back it up live, and then the record company kind of faltered. And I remember getting the call when we came back after a year on the road, it's time to make a new record. And I knew we were, we were kind of done at that point. We could not ever be that successful again as a band. And we just, I think, enjoyed playing live. So we, we just, you know, made the best records we possibly could. But I think the heart of the band had gone. You know, I think it, we, we just resigned to going on the road and having a ball but we knew we couldn't really bring it home with the record company you know it's difficult yeah and of course ron nevison produced it who's who's a great producer and i don't know how much time we have so i'll i'll start winding down and i'll i'll go with this one uh the no breaks album has of course missing you but it also has um dark side of the sun written by jean bouvoir and tears written by yeah. vinnie cusano who fans will know as vinnie vincent and Adam Mitchell, and of course, I say that because I'm a Kiss fan, and all three guys <laughs> are connected to Kiss. But just talk to me about that album because that one was, you know, it had the single. Yeah. Um, talk to me about sort of putting that together, uh, and the songs that came in from some of these other songwriters, like Vinny, like Adam. How were they selected? Just, just sort of talk to me about that time because that was, I mean, that's the one, right? Is that sort of? Yeah. Is, yeah. That brought me home. 
Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd got off the original label and uh, I flew to, to uh, LA from England. I was living in a small village in England. I was married and uh, EMI wanted to sign me. So they flew me to LA. I met, I met the A&R guy, Gary Gersh, and um, signed the contracts. Jim Marza, great guy, was running the company. And uh, Gary Gersh knew a guitar player called Gary Myrick, who had a drummer called Curly Smith. And uh, I had a bass player in New York called Donnie Nosloff that I played on Ignition, my first solo album. And it just, we started, I got to meet Gary and got on with him very well. You know, we really formed a fast friendship and he was very unorthodox as a guitar player. And I was just raring to go. I'd been off the road for maybe a year and living in England in, in the countryside in a tiny village. I was just full of it. You know, I just wanted to start work. And we actually started to record the record without me going home after signing the contracts. It was wild, you know. And um, Gary, Gary Gersh, the A&R guy, uh, we were working so fast. We, me and Gary wrote like four songs, and I had two songs from my New York days. No, one, Dreamtime, and I had Restless Heart that I'd written for the babies that didn't like it. But I had that as well. And we were maybe two songs short, and Gary said, listen, I've got these songs, and they're great songs. And he turned around with Tears by Vinnie Vincent, and we looked at each other like, well, you know, the demo isn't really like what we're doing. But uh, we we went, took it in the studio and played it and made it much more Spartan, I think, and, and kind of angular. It was a great lyric. I was on stage singing it mm. last week and I remember thinking, wow, this is a really good song. But we cut that and then we thought, well, this is great. And then Jean Beauvoir had Dark Side of the Sun. But I didn't like the lyric. I thought the lyric was... was uh, it didn't have anything to do with the street. Right. And uh, I rewrote the lyric one morning in New York before I went in to sing it uh, over a cup of coffee. I remember I was uh, in this apartment building that I was sub, subletting, sub, you know, I was renting off a friend of mine with my girlfriend. She'd come over and I remember she was making breakfast and I wrote the lyric out. Um... You know, it's like that. It's just taking the thing and making an extension. At the end of Tears, it goes, cry, cry, cry you a river, cry you a river tonight. I'm gonna... And I wrote this whole piece of music that would go in the end of it, like a soul thing. I mean, we, we were all like that. We wanted to make those songs work. But they took some manicuring. They took some hammering, too, you know. But um, at the 11th hour, we were mixing. Uh, Gary was doing the odd guitar solo with David Thorner. Uh, down at the uh, record plant and I knew we hadn't got the single. I think Gary had hoped that Tears and Dark Side of the Sun might, might hit because we'd written album tracks really and uh, I went away with a couple of guys the, the, I got this track that I heard in a studio and I just word associated and made up Missing You really in an evening in about 20 minutes took it back in the studio and played it to the guys in the in the in the mixing room and everybody went quiet i knew that it was number one i knew we had all the songs then and that the band had been ter terrific you know really great there was still a lot of work to be done i took the tapes to new york and put some keyboards on at the hit factory 
and then they were sent back to L.A., and I followed them back, and we mixed those. But it, it happened so quickly. The, the, the great thing about the No Breaks album is that it happened without anybody saying, are you sure you're right? I mean, there was no question about what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. And EMI allowed me to do that. Gary Gersh and Jim Marza were like angels to me. They're, they were the first people that said to me, yeah, you've got great talent and we believe in you. Can you make a record? And I said, of course. Up to that point, I'd been fighting the record company that I'd been on from the word go. You know, so it was a great experience. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about the, the tour one last time, but when you have a song that's as big as Missing You, is it is it sort of both positive and negative? Because I remember talking to Doug Feger of the Knack about my Sharona, and he said, you know, Mitch, yeah. it was like a golden albatross. I'm sitting in this great house with the pool and the whole thing, but every time I tried to make a song after that, the record company would go, yeah, that's great, but we don't hear my Sharona. Could you go write some more? Did you face that kind of stuff from the record company where they would say, yeah, you know, Mask of Smiles, it's, wow, but we don't hear Missing You. Could you go... Like, like, did you face no. that? No. Okay. No, my my relationship with the record label, um, I knew that that there wasn't going to be a second missing you. That that's something that happens. Um, that's like any major band writing the key single that launches their career, and you can be clever and not not make another record for two years recharge and uh, and come with something. But the immediate problem is is that everybody made a ton of money and the record companies say, well, look, if you don't... It happens about English. It's like, if you don't go back in the studio now, you're going to miss the summer. And if you miss the summer, we won't have a hit summer single and you can't tour the same venue. So come on, can you try for us? And in the end, you know... Uh, you kind of have to relent. And I think it would have been better to just take a complete year off and come back. But I loved that Mask of Smiles album. It was really a personal record, but I knew it wasn't going to have that impact. But I knew that I was still missing you, and that album had been so big that I didn't really need to make another record. And if it, if it wasn't number one, it didn't matter. It really didn't. I wasn't going to go on the road and get lost touring for a couple of years and come back a shadow of my former self. I wanted to go out and like play for a month and then come home. Doing Saturday Night Live and all that kind of stuff was great, but I didn't want to get caught up in the in the big business end of the of the music business. I wanted to really be my own man. My independence is everything to me, and I do my best work when I'm left to my own devices. And uh I think it happened to Bad English that we had a massive record. And then it's, you've got to go back in the studio. You've got to come back and do this thing. And we're saying, well, look, we have no songs. And then they say, well, you, we can't tour in the summer without a new record. We need you to, will you please come back and try? And I said no for like three months. I just wasn't coming back out of my home in New York. I was like, I'm just not doing it. And then in the end, my manager, God bless her, you know, I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, it was kind of, we shouldn't have done it. We should have just waited or yeah. shook hands and left the table, you know. But um, it's the nature of the music business. Yeah, strike while and the that, iron's hot. That's Yeah, you know. And if you don't, 
they're right. You know, people have short memories. So it's just, uh, it's catch-22. You know, but hopefully, you know, sometimes you, you can make it happen. But um, in a band, it's difficult. I think the bad English, English thing was almost impossible. And, uh, you know, I don't want to argue with people. I want to make music. And 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 by the way, we'll, we'll, so we'll finish on that. And what's the good thing about the selling of the CDs and, and the music directly from your site is that there's there is a personal connection connection, and the fans can get them signed by you. And it's just it's just different than walking into a Best Buy. You know, there, there's that personal connection when you get it from there. Well, uh, the, yeah, there is that, but you can get it at Target. You can, like I just said, you can. Right. You, I have a distribution deal now, right. and and it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make a record and get it in the stores. And with the internet being what it is, if you do an interview and you say, you know, yes, my record's out, we're touring this summer. I mean, everybody around the world hears it, um, and you, you know, autonomy. You know, it's like having your hands on the wheel and driving in the right direction. <laughs> it really is, you know, and it's a joy. You know, it's a real joy, Australia, you know. What a great thing to do to go to Australia and play for the first time. Ever. In and 40 years. Ever. How did you yeah. miss Australia for 40 years, by the way? I'm well, not... you know, people would ring up and say, we've got a tour for you, and uh, we're going to, you know, you're going to go to Australia. And then two months out, uh, it would disappear. Or the promoter would say, well, we're going to try for that next year. We've got bigger gigs to do, and we're going to blah, or smaller gigs or whatever it's going to be. But uh, after about five times of the babies almost going, bad English almost going, me almost going a couple of times, and the rug being pulled out from under your feet, you actually stop thinking about it. You think it's just an impossibility. And that's what happened. And this year we had somebody turn around and say, what will it cost to get you down there? You know, we want to do it right. And we want to fly you down, you know, first class. It's going to be the right thing to do. And we're going to put you in the best gigs, uh, and we'll give you this, and we'll, we'll do TV and radio, and and it was just like a great offer from a great promoter, and we all felt great about going. So it was kind of like the deal was right. It's not about making tons of money so much; it's just doing it right, so that when you get down there, you can put on the best shows, you know. But but money aside, it's just amazing to look back at the songs I quoted from the babies and the bad English ones and missing you. And when I see you smile, all these massive top 20 hits and nobody thought, Hey, we should bring him, you know, like, you know, it's just, it, it, it baffles my mind that nobody like in 1991 said, here's a guy with all these top 10 hits. We should have him anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't explain <laughs> it either. I was, on, I was on Australian, I was on Australian TV last week, live talking to channel 10 and they were asking me some really pointed questions and it was funny and they were super smart and uh i had to give honest smart answers you know and i couldn't explain it in the end i said i'm embarrassed forgive me uh, it just it's just been an impossibility and people went like okay you know but they're really you know it's it's a wonderful thing it really is i mean everything this year has just suddenly gone into high gear and i think it's uh it's the fact that we went out with the Wooden Heart Tour uh, and started playing more intimate gigs like the City Winery in Chicago and, uh, you know, like I said, the Ruth Eckerd Hall in, in Clearwater. I mean, they're really great gigs, you know. They're, they're sonically beautiful places to play. And the audience have responded. And it's, I think it's given me a, a niche that, that nobody else is really doing 
all my peers are doing. And it's interesting. And it's a, like I said, it's a challenge. And the guys are great. Everybody gets on. It's funny. I mean, the drummer actually gets up and tap dances occasionally. I mean, it's really kind of out of control, but it's a great night. And uh, laughter, you know, to go out there and have the joy of playing all these great songs and laugh and meet the people that bought the records. And it's just such a positive experience. You know, it's burning really bright this year, and we intend to take it all over the world, really. Yeah, and I'm hoping for it. So the, uh, the, the Wooden Heart 40th Anniversary Tour continues through April and May, and hopefully uh, June, July, and August. Uh, fingers crossed, and hopefully a Canadian date or two. Uh, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. 17 years between interviews. A, a, a little bit hey, too long. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But you got the whole number now. At this point, we exchanged some personal information. So, of course, I have to just cut that out. But we started talking about a mutual friend, his former bass player, John Regan. And I just wanted to throw that back in there because what he said about John was absolutely wonderful. And we all love John Regan, of course, of John Wade, Fraley's Comet, and more. So uh, just let's get back to this. John Regan, man, they, they only made one of John. I mean, he's like the most dependable, solid, musical guy. He's a complete sweetheart. I've never had a crossword with John. Yeah. And we've been playing, we played on the road for a couple of years, went through Europe, European tours and the whole... But what a great guy. You know, God bless you. For, I appreciate your time and your honesty and, and being a good guy, and I do appreciate it. So Thank I'll you. see you down the road. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Well, well, well. Wasn't John Waite absolutely wonderful? I mean, just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um... Of course, Wooden Heart is CD1 and CD2, Anthology 1, Anthology 2. Pick those up now. Head over to his website. They are on Spotify and um, iTunes. That's where I've seen them. And now we'll move on to the next John. And, of course, if you noticed, uh, in my week of John, four interviews with John's going to see John Bon Jovi. And, of course, who do we talk about? Me and John? Well, John Regan. Hey, it's all about the Johns. Um, what can we say? John Karabi has a new live album called One Night in Nashville. Very, very different than One Night in Bangkok, which, by the way, is a great song. But One Night in Ma- Nashville uh, sees John, along with his son, Ian, uh, tackle the entire Motley Crue 1994 album And uh, say what you will, that album was dismissed when it came out for not being the real Motley Crue. And yes, that's where, I guess, brand name sort of got the best of the band. But it's a great album. Great album. Hooligans Holiday, one of the greatest songs out of the 90s. And quite frankly, one of the greatest songs from an 80s band. So uh, you got to get that. And, of course, he is now a member, or, well, now, it's been a couple of years, but he's been a member of the Dead Daisies. They have a new album called Burn It Down, featuring Dean Castronovo on drums. And what can I say? And I mean no offense to those who came before him, but Dean's swagger, Dean's style, Dean's backing vocals, vocals, add a dimension to the band that was missed. And again, no disrespect to anybody who came before, but 
Dean really rounds out that that band. It, it, it takes it to the next level. You know, the drumming before was, and I don't want to say it was very stiff, but it was very straightforward and it was just very sort of there. Uh, Dean just really, like I said, swagger, swing, and then those vocals, those harmonies. Marco Mendoza, John Carabi, and Dean Castronova all blending their voices together. Absolutely, absolutely magical. So do check out the Dead Daisies, Burn It Down, and and John Karabi's One Night in Nashville. And while you're at it, spin one night in Bangkok just for the fun of it. Um, but here is the one, the only, the affable and agreeable John Karabi. We are speaking with singer John Karabi of the Dead Daisies. The new album is called Burn It Down. Good day, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you. How you doing, buddy? Ha! Huh. I'm awake, but I'm, no, I'm doing great, actually. <laughs> um, That's know. cool. But let, let's talk Dead Days, and then we'll talk about some of the other stuff, because, uh, of course, you've got the live album, the, the live Motley Crue thing. Uh, but burn it down. I hear this album, and I think it's great. And what I find the most interesting is that it really sounds now that we have this band and we have these five guys that are in it together talk to me about sort of coming in as you know sort of a replacement singer and sort of now growing it into this where we've got this lean mean machine well you know i I, yeah i've been with the band since uh 2015 um prior to me joining um, they did one record with, uh, their old singer, John Stevens, and I believe an EP. Um, and, um, you know, at this point now there's like a kind of a core here. Um, you know, the first record I did with them, it was unfortunate for them, unfortunate for us, but, you know, Guns N' Roses called Dizzy and Richard and asked them to come back for the, uh, the big, um, you know, not in this lifetime tour. Um, so they went and they did that enter Doug Aldridge. And, um, you know, now this is the third record, um, you know, core of at least Marco, David, Doug, and myself. And, um, you know, we just got Dean Castronovo this year. Um, he came in due to the, you know, uh, obviously the availability of Brian Tishy, um, Brian had some prior commitments and things were overlapping and, and I think he just wanted to kind of, he wanted to jump off the ship and just kind of start working on a solo record and some solo things that he's been wanting to do. But, um, Dean came in, did an amazing job, stepped into the situation and killed the drums. And, um, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think David's always wanted a band situation and I think, um, hopefully this is it. You know, I think we've, we've got it to this point. We're, we're um, onward and upward, move forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so talk to me about Dean because Dean is not just a drummer. I mean, he, he has an ability to sing and he, he harmonizes and the backing vocals. I find that that's really sort of noticeable on this album where it's just a fuller album. There's a fuller sound. The songs are, are, are better rounded out. And I'm sure that's, that's part of the band being this core unit. We're all, all working together, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that Dean has a great little add to that. So talk to me about his vocal abilities and what, and what that has added to the band or what Dean has added to the band. Well, you know, to be honest with you, I, I had never worked with Dean 
prior to this record. Um, you know, I met him in New York when we were doing the writing part, um, you know, and, 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 and it's just weird. Like just Dean is, he's just happy. He's excitable. He's, he's, uh, you know, I never thought I'd meet anybody with more energy than Brian Tishy. I always used to kid and say, Brian needed to cut back on his coffee intake, <clears throat> but Dean kind of makes him look like a rookie. <laughs> um, you know, he's got a lot of energy. He was, you know, obviously Dean's been through a rough couple of years. You know, he went through a little bit of a dark period. And I just think that, you know, um, we called him, we sat down, we talked with him. He told us everything that happened with him in his past, um, how he's gotten his life together. And, you know, at this point, I think he was just looking for the opportunity to get out and rock out again. And he came in, he knew what we were trying to do. He heard some of the material as we were just starting to work on it. You know, but the thing about Dean is, you know, as great of a drummer as Brian is, um, Dean's also an amazing drummer. He's done a lot of session work in the past. Um, he's obviously played on some amazing stuff, Journey, Bad English, um, and a ton of session work. And Hardline so with... What was that hardline exactly. song? Uh, uh, Sweet Cherry. That's, that was the song. Yeah. And he's, you know, so Dean, Dean in his own way, they're, they're different drummers, but Dean in his own right is an amazing drummer as well. And the thing that I love about, you know, where we didn't kind of miss a beat with Dean is, you know, I just love guys that can come in and listen to the song and go like, for example, the song Rise Up to me is a very kind of old school Sabbath kind of a vibe to it. And Dean heard it, he said it, and then he kind of sat down behind the kit and kind of channeled a, his inner black Sabbath and just laid down exactly what was needed for the song. He's, he's just a musical guy, you know? So we're sitting there and, you know, I, Again, I got to be friends with him. He's got a great sense of humor because I totally screwed with him the whole time. You know, and he came in. He was, again, very, very, very good dude to work with. And and then when we were doing vocals, Marty's like, oh, hey, you know, let's let's do some backing vocals. And, you know, so we had Marco and Dean in there. And it was just I really got excited because Dean, you know, he went in and he just started singing shit and you're like, Oh God, this is going to be fucking awesome live. Like now, now it's going to be me, Marco, Dean and duck. You know what I mean? Like just, you know, doing some really cool things, interesting things vocally. And it's just going to open things up that much more. So I'm very excited about it. I'm I'm really excited about what we're going to do live. Um, but I'm excited about what Dean vocally, uh, him and Marco did to a lot of the backing vocals, man. It's really going to be cool. Well, well that's it. Really the, album, cool. the album is really rounded out. Um, you mentioned live and we, we mentioned Guns N' Roses. The band in July is going to go open uh, some or a show for Guns N' Roses on the Not In This Lifetime tour. That is so exciting. I mean, <laughs> I, I'd love to carry your luggage and come along for that one. But but just talk to me well, about you, that. that. You, you, know, 
Yeah. It, it's it's going to be awesome. I mean, you know, when we, we played a show in New York and, um, you know, it was, it was awesome because Richard, for some apparent reason, uh, we were, you know, as obviously we had Doug, but Richard, for some apparent reason, was in New York and he came down to the show and then he told Frank about it, Frank Ferrer. So Frank came down and, um, you know, we sat, we jammed a couple of things and those guys are great. So we've known obviously Dizzy and Richard forever. Frank's been, you know, Frank's been a buddy forever. Um, you know, Duff, a lot of people don't realize it, but Duff was, um, he was actually supposed to co-produce the scream record, um, with Eddie Kramer back in the day. He wound up getting sick. He had shoulder surgery and all this other stuff. But, um, you know, so I've known Duff forever. I get along with him. The only, only two that I don't really know in that camp is, is, um, you know, I've met Axel a few times, but brief, not like we've actually sat down and talked and slash I've met a few times as well, but, um, you know, we were both drinking at the time, so I don't even know if he'd remember because we were both pretty shit faced, but you know, so it's just uh, honestly, like I'm looking forward to the show cause it'll be great to see all the guys again. Uh, we know a lot of the crew guys, my old, um, my old manager, um, this gentleman named Pete is tour managing them. So it, 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 it it'll, or no, no, he was tour managing them. Now it's funny. Oddly now he's out with Judas priest who we were just talking about. Right. But, um, and, and I know but, a lot of the crew guys, it's just going to be like old home week. So it'll be cool. And speaking of Priest, their new album, Firepower, is excellent. But Scott Travis, their drummer, uh, was part of the Scream or was in that that scenario way back in the day, right? He was the original drummer for the Scream. And he wound up getting a call um, to join Judas Priest. And he left the band and did the Painkiller record. Wow. How cool is it? I mean, that that Scream record, you know... let it scream. I, I, I wasn't actually going to go there today, but why not? Because you've got Scott Travis, who's now in Priest, and they have made an album that is so incredibly good that it's, it, it should be criminalized. I mean, it's, it's just that good. And, of course, you had Eddie Kramer, who worked with Jimi Hendrix and Kiss. And um, just, quick, just quickly talk about that, having Eddie Kramer as a producer. What, what as a rookie, a young kid, because that's what you were back then, walking into a studio with Eddie Kramer, what was that like to have this guy that had this pedigree of Kiss and Hendrix and what did he bring to you? You know, it, it was, it was a little bit like, you know, I mean, if I can be blunt, like we were all just sitting there pinching ourselves, just sitting there going, are you fucking kidding me? Like Eddie Kramer is going to produce our record. Like Hendrix, Four Zeppelin records, all the Kiss Alive stuff, Frampton Comes Alive, Humble Pie, Rolling Stones, The Beatles, you know what I mean? All this amazing stuff. And he came in and Eddie immediately disarmed all of us. He came in, he was headbanging. Um, but it, 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 was, it was funny, like Eddie was so charming you know, he disarmed all of us, made us all feel at home. Um, you know, and, and, and it was just, he totally understood and got what we were trying to do. One of the songs on the record 
there was a song on that Scream album called Catch Me If You Can. It was the last song on the record. And it was funny. Pretty much every other producer we had worked with hated that song. They were like, no, no, you guys aren't ready yet. You need to go right. You know, all this other stuff. And we literally sat down. Eddie came in and we played him almost all of the material for the record. But we're, we're like, let's play him Catch Me If You Can and see if he gets this. And it was funny. Like we played the song. He had his hair back in a little ponytail. And, and uh, we, sit, we start the song. I start singing. And we get to the chorus. Eddie pulled the ponytail out of his hair or the rubber band and just started headbanging. That's great. And That's... Yeah. And so we get done the whole thing. We were pissing ourselves laughing. We just, we couldn't even finish the song. We stopped playing the song and we said to Eddie, like, you dig that? And he goes, yeah, dude, why not? It's a fucking great song. Like it's energetic. It's, it shows off everybody's playing ability. You know, it's, it's a great energetic song. Why not? Every record should have one of those. And you know what? There's still a lot of things that he taught me um, that I still use to this day. Um, you know, there was one at one point we were doing a song. I don't know if you're familiar with the record, but there was a song on the record called I Don't Care, which is it's just a riff. It's very Zeppelin-esque. Yep. And when we were tracking the song, Walt, um, God bless him, um, was, he was kind of complaining. He couldn't, he couldn't figure out, you know, he, he kept saying like, I, I can't track this song unless I hear John sing it. And Eddie just kind of sat there and he said, then you don't know the song. And he said, here's the deal. He goes, you're the drummer. You're driving the ship. So you need to know the riff is there's going to be four riffs or eight riffs. And then the vocals are going to start there. And while you're tracking, you need to have those votes. So it's eight riffs, then the vocals, then there's eight more of the riff with the vocal. And then there's the pre-chorus and then the chorus. And if you can't break it down in your head while you're playing it, sing it to yourself and just know the song, then you haven't done your homework. Yeah. And, um, oddly enough, years later, I was sitting with my son and we were going through some of the stuff like power to the music for the Motley 94 thing. And I wasn't there, but my son called me and he's like, dad, I can't, you know, I can't do these songs unless you're there and you're singing. And I said, then you haven't done your homework. <laughs> and I found myself repeating exactly what Eddie Kramer said to my son. I'm like, Eddie Karabi. listen to the record. Yeah, listen to the record. And there's, you know, there's the intro, then the drums kick in. And then there's, you know, just count to yourself how many times the riff goes around before I start singing. And then you need to break it down and map it out in your brain. And as soon as I told him, he's like, oh, okay, oh, yeah, uh, whatever, and, you know, and he did it. He did his homework and he came in and he played it flawlessly from that point on. But it's just weird. Like there's little things that you pick up, you know, that Eddie, Eddie told us. And then, and then to boot, like he had the most amazing stories about Hendrix and Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and 
you know, just these legendary stories and you're like, ah, this is amazing. You know? So the whole thing was just, you know, wake me up. I'm dreaming. You know what I mean? It was crazy. Oh, it really is. And, and it's sort of, if you look at it on burn it down, it sort of embodies his entire work because the sound on the album has that sort of classic sound, but it's also, it's, it's a very modern album. But if you look at what he did with Kiss and April Wine and Fastway and Triumph and Frampton, you sort of are, you know, you're, you've got that spirit going on with the Dead Daisies new album. And of course, I would love to talk at length about Let It Scream. It, it, it's an album that sort of fell through the cracks because of the, the, the shifting tides back then. But that, that is something that I guess at, at some point needs to be revisited or just... Well, just, you know just, what? You know, I'll yeah. tell you what we're going to do. Yeah. Not, not to get off the subject, but let's just put an asterisk right here. Yep. Because I'm sure you're familiar with the record label out of London called Rock Candy. Yes, I am. Great label. Uh, all right, so... John Karabi's going to have a very good year. So I've got Live 94 came out in January. Um, Burn It Down is coming out in April. And yep. Rock Candy just purchased the rights to the Scream album, and they are repackaging it as we speak. And I think, I'm not totally sure, but the last I heard is they found um, four or five or six live tracks floating around on the internet and they're repackaging the scream album with some live tracks and they're putting it out later this year. So, um, that record for me, I'm just, I'm not going to make any money from it. Um, you know, the, obviously we all know how record companies work, but, yep. um, you know, the bottom line of it is, is it frustrated the shit out of me when I would see fans come up to me and go, dude, I found the scream record. I only had to pay $300 for it. And I'm, I go on eBay and I see it for 250 bucks. There's every now and then you'll find one for $20. But for the most part, it was these astronomical sums of money. And I'm just happy that a record label is now putting it out for a reasonable amount of money. It'll probably be downloadable. Um, I'm hoping they'll put it on iTunes and it'll be available once again for fans to purchase at a normal price. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know it, what I mean? and it'll so. just be nice to sort of have a, a a fresh coat of paint on this album because I mean you have Ray Gillen singing a backing vocal, you have you have Scott that wrote a song, you've got Eddie Kramer. I mean, it's just it's just it's got everything you want, and, and it just it was just the wrong time, I guess, in '91. You know, anyway, I, I'm glad that Rock Candy because Rock Candy, for those that don't know. They reissue these older albums a lot of times from forgotten bands. They did Honeymoon Suite. They've done a, and they really do a great job on the remastering. I mean, the sound, the albums sound great. They really put a lot of love into what they do. They really do. So, well, I I just I just got an email from uh, <clears throat> Mr. Derek Oliver, who yes. I guess is in. He's the president of the label and. You know, obviously you're a writer, so you know who Malcolm Dome is from, you know, old Kerrang days and stuff yep. like that. Yep. Malcolm's doing all the liner notes, and, and um, so it should be something I'm really looking forward to that coming out this year as well. So yeah. it'll be cool. And and Malcolm, uh, for those who used to read those those old UK albums, you know, uh, classic rock and uh, Kerrang and all that stuff. Uh, he's great. Great, great, great writer. Um, all right. So you mentioned your son. So let's move over to live 94 one night in Nashville. Um, but more and more bands are having 
dads and sons work together, whether it's uh, Phil Campbell from, from Motorhead with his sons or Pete Agnew from Nazareth uh, and others, of course, uh, uh, Dax Nielsen, of course, in Cheap Trick. Yeah, uh, Rick Nielsen, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. So, so just talk to me first about just – you know, you you have your son, and he's five years old, and he's signing, uh, standing side stage, and he's you know backstage with the big earmuffs, and and now he's behind you. Just just talk to me as a dad, but what's that like to have this little kid, <laughs> who you know used to stand on the side of the stage with the big red earmuffs, and now is your backbeat? He's your rhythm. He's 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 it. And and you, and you know what's funny? Like, um, you know, Ian, my son has been through a lot of, a lot of shit since, you know, there's been the ups and downs of dad's career. Um, at three or four years old, he was diagnosed with diabetes. So he's been, you know, since he was three years old, insulin dependent, you know, still is. And, um, you know, and then, you know, a few years back, he kind of called me out of the clear blue and, and, um, we've always had a very open relationship. Um, very honest with each other. And he called me up and he's like, dad, I need your help. And, you know, and he called me and unbeknownst to me, he was, um, he admitted to me that he had been addicted to, um, heroin for a year. Wow. And I was like, what, you know, so he asked if he could come out and, you know, my wife now was my girlfriend at the time. He said, can I come out? I, I need to get my life together. So he came out and, you know, it was crazy when he showed up, I picked him up at the airport and he looked horrible and he came and stayed at my house and I got him cleaned up and sobered up and, um, <clears throat> but he wanted to. So the whole process was very easy. And then we had a little heart to heart, you know, and he said, you know what, I, I just, I just kind of want to be in a band with you. So I said, okay. So I handed him, you know, we were getting ready. We were talking about doing, um, some shows. <clears throat> I said, probably the hardest stuff that you're going to have to play from my career is this. So I slid the Motley record to him and I just said two things to him. I, I said, you know what, if you can play, any song on that record, exactly like the record, then it's your gig. Number two, I go, you want to smoke a little weed, drink beer with me on occasion or something like that. That's fine. But I told him if I see you doing anything other than that, any other drug or whatever, you're out. Wow. So it's your gig to lose. And in his, to his credit, um, he's been fucking amazing. Um, he got his life together. He got his shit together. Um, he just now he, I, I have to give him credit. Uh, you know, he's got his girlfriend and they just had identical twin daughters. He's got a gig. He's working, um, working hard. Uh, I unfortunately haven't really been doing a lot of shows with my band because of the daisies. But hopefully um, I can sort that out. And this year I'm, I'm hoping to do more shows. But, um, you know, when I, we decided to go in and do the Motley 94 thing, I was concerned. I'm like, that's probably Tommy's. Most aggressive. Everybody says it. 
that's probably Tommy Lee at his most aggressive behind the kit. Like yeah. every, even other drummers are like, dude, that was Tommy Swan song, that record. So I, you know, I, I said, I hope you can do this. You know what I mean? And, and he's like, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I got to be honest with you, Mitch, like standing on stage, singing the stuff and playing the stuff and hearing those fills again, it's like it was flawless. And then to turn around and sit there and see my boy back there doing his thing. And I would just laugh. I'm like, that's my fucking, that's my kid. That's my, that's the fruit of my loins. There he is right there. Boom. And it was very on, on, on a very regular basis, man. I would just find myself laughing and just, it was so good for me, like to go, fuck, I'm doing it with him. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was pretty awesome as a dad, you know? And, and, um, I gotta be honest, man, all the guys in my band did a great job, but the one thing, even a lot of the reviewers that have, I've been talking with in the last couple of weeks, they all said the same thing. They're like, we were very concerned that you were doing this stuff live at how your son was going to play the drums. But I got to be honest with you, they all have been over overwhelmingly. Everybody's like, he did a great job. He really nailed the stuff. So I, I, I couldn't be more proud of him. I'm proud of him for getting his life together. Proud of him for how he's handling the birth of his daughters. And I'm also proud of him at the way he handled himself and still does on the kit. He really, he really stepped up. Yeah. And, and what's amazing about that story that it's not just, it's not just dad and son playing. I mean, it was almost sort of like a life and death thing. I mean, if, if this didn't work out or he started not following the rules about the, and, and he, I don't want to say he manned up, but he stepped up and, and delivered not just on a, I can play these songs thing, but he, stepped up on a life basis too, if, if that's fair to say. Yeah. And that's great. And it's that's weird. Great. Like even when I, I introduce everybody in the band, uh, there's even a point on the record. If you've heard the record, I introduce everybody in the band and then I go, I tell everybody the story. I said, if you go back and you look at the man in the moon video, I go the very, very beginning of the video, there's a little kid that runs across the screen with a lawnmower. I go, yep. that was my son then, and this is my son now. Everybody welcome, you know, Ian Karabi, and everybody gets a kick out of it. It's, it, it really is. I, I can't say enough, like, how awesome it is to be able to stand on stage with, you know, your kid and just play your shit. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's pretty fucking awesome. That, that is great. And, and you know, with... Rob Halford, who rides a motorcycle onto the stage, you should probably have Ian push a lawnmower across the stage, just, just as a visual. That would be hilarious. <laughs> That'd be a great visual. Um, the other big thing that's happening in, in this year is that a lot of the former sort of guys around the KISS world, you know, Bruce and Bob, they went and did stuff with Brent and and there's going to be, you know, Vinny is going to do a, a signing thing with Gene and Ace. And there's just a lot of action in that sort of kiss world and the kiss sort of side world. 
uh, Union, and we talked about the Blue Room before we we got on air, which was a great album, the last album. Is there anything that 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 you might do again with Union? Would would you consider doing you know uh, some 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 Union shows with some of the Motley '94 shows? I mean, and, and what do you sort of think? I mean, we've talked about it. Okay. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Bruce and Brent, and I have actually talked about um, going out and, you know, trying to figure out when there was going to be, you know, time for us to get together, you know, but it's so crazy. Like, you know, everybody's schedule for the last 15 years has been ridiculous. Um, Union never split up. We just kind of, we just kind of slowed down to a like a kind of a stall, if you will. Um, we weren't making any money. We couldn't get arrested here in America. We were doing okay in Europe, but, um, you know, it was just one of those things where, you know, we were out doing what we love to do. And, you know, then suddenly Bruce gets this offer to go make a somewhat steady, you know, salary playing for Grand Funk Railroad, you know, so we took it. I got offered to do rat. And again, it was steady money. And then oddly enough, Brent and Jamie got offered the Vince Neil gig. Um, Brent, on the other hand, has gone on to do um, Theory of a Dead Man. He's played with Slash and the Conspirators. And, you know, now he's out with Gene Simmons. And But we've all talked about like, man, God, it would be great if we could just, if we could get together and rehearse for a few days a week and then go out and do maybe a month's worth of shows. I think now the climate for union would be pretty, pretty awesome. Like we could probably go out and do a run in America or Europe or anywhere. And it would actually do well for some apparent reason. Every time I do a record or a band (laughs) at the time, it like everybody sitting there scratching her head, like, what is this? And then, it seems like 20 years later it catches up where it's like, Oh man, I'd love to see Motley with you again, or I'd love to see the scream or union or whatever. So uh, there's been talk. We even got offered, um, you know, to do one, one show, like a reunion show on a monsters of rock cruise, which I think would be great. It would yeah. be a lot of fun. You know, monsters it, of rock just... kiss cruise M three festival. There, there's just there's a place for these bands yeah, but to come it, back. It, it's, it's not just about the show. It's, it's how much time do we need prior to get it to the point where we could go do a show? You know what I mean? So there's, it's usually, you know, like a month, month and a half, two months, something like that. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> it's going to take some time, um, you know, but we have talked about it. We've, I've talked with Bruce about it. I've talked with Brent about it and, I would love to do it. I think it would be a lot of fun, you know, but it's like, we just got to see, you know, when the availability is for everybody. You know what I mean? Um, I just, I know Brent's been out doing the Gene Simmons thing, but I just saw now too today, some, one of those, you know, other magazine things I get on my phone basically said that um, Slash is doing a new conspirators record. So I don't know if Brent's in the studio with him as well, you know, whatever. 
but it's just everybody's schedules is so all over the place. So we got to see what the deal is. Yeah, and, and I actually spoke to to Brent, uh, not in an interview, but uh, over the weekend, and he's doing the Toke stuff with, um, uh, you know, the that sort of tribute band that he does, uh, and it's just it just it never ends. So busy, 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 busy. Um, the other album that you did with Motley Crue, which was the EP Quartenary. Is that how we say Quartenary? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Quartenary, yeah. Quartenary. You included one of those songs, 10,000 Miles Away, on the uh, Live 94. Do you see yourself doing anything with that, those songs down the road, and, and adding more of them to the to the set list? Like, just talk to me about that, because, you know, if you look at the Japanese version, it was eight songs, so you essentially did two full albums with Motley Crue, though most people don't talk about that. Just, just a quick word on, on that and the song Friends that you wrote for it, and because that was a that yeah. was a great little release. I have that Japanese version with the eight song or the nine songs on it actually, and it was a great yeah, sort well, there of was second a of, album. Uh, yeah, there was a couple of I think I'm not sure, but I think there was some weird you know there was a couple of demos I think on the record. Yep. No, I have it right in front of me. Hypnotized. You've got Hammer, um, Living in the Know, Hooligans Holiday Extended, and then yeah, Planet Boom, Bittersweet, and all. It, it, right. So last year I did a, I did, um, there was a festival here in Nashville, uh, called farm rock. And I did an electric set one day opening for, um, Vince Neal. And then I did an acoustic set, um, one day opening for Tom Kiefer and, um, you know, in the acoustic set we did, you know, when I play with my band, we do friends, but we do it on acoustic guitars instead of the piano and all that other stuff. And it's a little bit of a different take on it, but it's really cool. There's actually a version of it on YouTube if you want to check it out. But oh, yeah. um, I do do friends. Um, it was um, now on our live 94 shows, we would alternate. We would do the album. And then... um depending on how I felt, you know, you got to understand too, like I'm giving my age away, but you know, like singing that Motley stuff, um, live, it's not easy to be able to do the entire record. Cause that, that's one record where I, I don't think vocally I ever took, uh, a break. Like it's full tilt the whole time. And so there's some days where I would go out and we would do the whole, you know, the last song would be drift away and we'd walk off stage. We'd get an encore and we would come out and we would do either 10,000 miles away, or we would do baby kills, which is on the quaternary record as well. Um, I only did the one show and, you know, I wanted to do, I was going to try and do both songs, but I was just so beat up after, after, you know what I mean? Like I said, vocally, it's so freaking hard to do that stuff anymore. I, there was a couple times when we were rehearsing before we even started doing the shows where I was like, holy shit, what the fuck was I thinking when I was screaming like this at the top of my lungs to do this record? It, it was, it was difficult. So I would alternate do one or the other. And, and, um, you know, so a lot of that stuff, we still do it. I mean, we'll go out and we'll do baby kills or, you know, anything from that Motley record 
or 10,000 miles away. We do friends. Um, so we pretty much do it all. But the other, th- the other reason why I, I kind of stopped doing the shows is because we were advertising, you know, John Karabi performing the live 94, you know, the Motley 94 record in its entirety. And then I would get done. We'd do like hour and a half, you know, whatever show. And like I said, I just scream the whole time. And then I would get off stage and go do a signing. And probably seven out of 10 people would come up to me and go, I'm a little bummed out, dude. And I go, did you not like the show? No, 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 no. I loved it. But you didn't do any scream or any union. You can't win, so, don't you know? You, you can't win. Well, I know. <laughs> you know, I get it. But I, I just I just kind of sat there and I went, oh. okay, you know what? I've actually <clears throat> did it. It was 2014. It was the 20th anniversary. It kind of carried over into 15 when I recorded the album. I did the record and I said, you know what? Let's knock it on the head. It's done. I did it. It's done. You know, um, now what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll play some scream stuff. I'll play some union and I'll play. I can change it up. I, one night I can do smoke the sky and till death do his part. Another night I can do hooligans holiday and baby kills, you know, so I'll do a couple different songs from the record, misunderstood, whatever we can do it, you know, but I'm just, I, I just sit there and I go now I've got so much fucking material from my past um, you know, like I said, scream Motley union, and now people want to hear dead daisies. So I got to You know, I got to kind of, I, I can't limit it to one thing. Let's just, let's just, I agree by the <laughs> let's way, just play I, a little bit of everything. You know what I mean? Honestly, what I would, what as a fan is, and I'm speaking slowly as a fan here, I would like to see you and Brent and Bruce go out and do something that was similar to the ESP project and have you do, you know, free ride and then set me free and whatever, and then do a union song and maybe a grand funk song and just give the fans sort of a, a 20 song set lit, like a greatest hits of all your careers. And I think that would just be spectacular because, it, because it would be, <laughs> that's why. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if we do the union thing, like if it was honestly me, Bruce, Brent, and, uh, I, and again, I, I talked to Brent about it. And, um, we, we basically both agreed, you know, if we're ever going to do union reunion shows, it's gotta be the four guys. So we not only have to make sure Bruce's schedule is clear, Brent's schedule has got to be clear, mine and, and Jamie's as well. I don't want to do it unless Jamie can be involved in it, you know, and, the last I heard with Jamie, um, I know he was out doing some shows with Roger Daltrey for a while. So, um, you know, it, it it's going to be a little difficult, but I think at some point we'll eventually do it. That, that, that'd be great. And you, and you can just have him bring Roger along to, to do the encores. That, that, that's fine with me. Um, yeah, we'll lay do you know we'll do uh, rain on me and you know pinball wizard or something. I don't yeah. know. we'll figure it out. We'll figure we it can out. Make it work. Uh, John, always a great pleasure. I mean, there's there's so much more to talk about, but uh, burn it down and, and the live album. But burn it down, holy mackerel! What a home run! Uh, and I think the band and you look at the Dead Daisies. There, there's been a, a litany of 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 guys that came in and out. But these guys, this band with Dean, with yourself, and 
it's just it is a great great album and really you hit the nail on the head with this one so that's cool buddy thank you and thank you for for that and thank you for always doing these interviews and always being great to, to talk to and stuff and uh voila we'll we'll do a part two when the rock candy comes out and we'll we'll talk about the scream in detail because that is a band that is um well it was overlooked and it shouldn't have been you know well, who knew I was going to get the phone call I got, though, too. So, you know what I mean? Can't Everything be. works out the way it's supposed to, buddy. Yep, you it know? did. So. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. All right, brother. Merci. Be good. Go get some sleep. Oh, yes. <laughs> I need some. Thank you. Cheers. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. There you go, John Karabi, and uh, I certainly hope you haven't had your fill of Johns yet, because I have one more. John Bush of Armored Saint. We are going to talk about their Symbol of Salvation album tour and a lot more. But before that, let me just mention John Bon Jovi. Yes, early April, I got to see him live, or I'll be seeing him live at the Bell Center in Montreal, and then on April 14th, the band, along with Richie Sambora and Alec John Such, get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And all I can say is that it has been a long time coming and overdue. Yes, I think we all sit here and pontificate about how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doesn't really matter to fans and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, I think we all discuss it. And when our band is not inducted, like Judas Priest, like Iron Maiden... And stuff like that, we go, oh, how dare they not induct them? So on some level, I do think we uh, we care. And so John Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi are getting inducted. And if you look at the career, long, illustrious, profitable, did they change the musical landscape? Sure they did. Because once Slippery When Wet got huge, pretty much every band out of L.A., or out of the United States, tried to be uh, Bon Jovi knockoffs. Okay, perhaps an exaggeration, but many, many bands tried to be Bon Jovi knockoffs, and the record company were certainly looking for a lot of Bon Jovi uh, knockoffs. Now, bands that belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that are not getting their due, and listen, the list is long. We could list easily 400 bands here, but I'm just going to start with three of my personal favorites. White Snake? I mean, really? White Snake is not in there? Huh. I mean, if you're looking at sort of blues rock or you're looking at that, that classic sound, you, you can't beat David Coverdale. Now, he's already in there with Deep Purple, but White Snake certainly more successful than um, Deep Purple. I mean, I think that's fair to say, right, in terms of, of sales and, and, and stuff like that. Now, People are going to point out, well, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not just about record sales. Mm. Okay, sure, it's not. Let, let's have a long look at, at who's in there. And there, there are two types. There are the media darlings that uh, Rolling Stone magazine and a few other hip critics embraced. And then the rest are multi-platinum artists. That's pretty much it. I mean, you look at a band like Tora Tora, for example, they are certainly a great band, or Little Caesar, certainly a great band. Um, they have done music like a lot of the other bands, and why are they not in there? Probably because they didn't sell arenas over and over and over again. I mean, Little Caesar certainly has more uh, studio albums than Guns N' Roses, 
Oh, and yeah, guns is there. Oh, I see how this works. And uh, after that, after the White Snake Boys, uh, Scorpions. Wow, the most successful German band. Uh, am I stating something that's that's incorrect there? Are we gonna are we gonna argue that it's Ramstein or Ramstein, however you say? No, I mean the Scorpions. Come on, fifty years career and no Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Hmm. Now, Cheap Trick's in there, and I love Cheap Trick, but I'm pretty sure uh, Rock You Like a Hurricane and uh, those albums from the 70s and 80s far surpass what Cheap Trick has done. And and that's not a knock against Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick just belongs there. But I think if Cheap Trick belongs there, certainly the Scorpions uh, belong there. Iron Maiden? Iron Maiden's not there? How is that possible? I mean, other than Metallica... And Black Sabbath, who has affected metal or hard rock more than Iron Maiden? And I think the answer is pretty much nobody. Can you can you make a, a, a can you debate that perhaps Motorhead? Hmm, maybe. But Iron Maiden not being there. So I mean, you know, we we've got these bands. Oh, and the, and the other one, I I had said three, and and I skipped ahead to. Uh, Iron Maiden, but the other one that I think deserves to be there is Def Leppard. They went toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow, single-for-single with Bon Jovi, and they both came out on top. I, I really don't think... And yes, it, I, to me, there was a competition there. And, and it's clear to me that Def Leppard have stood the test of time as much as Bon Jovi were as important to the rock scene back then, are still a viable touring entity. I mean, every year they put a package on in the States, whether it's with Journey or with Brian Adams or whoever they're doing it with that year. They're uh, Poison, for example. They're out there, and they're selling, and fans are going, and fans are enjoying just as much as John Bon Jovi. So if you're going to put Bon Jovi in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, well... Clear some shelf space for Def Leppard because they belong right next to them. So, you know, anyway, so we, we've got John Bon Jovi and the guys going in well-deserved, a little late, uh, but better late than never. And I think if we sit around here and saying, well, we don't really care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, I don't know. I think hate is not the indif- is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. And I think when we get to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there's a lot of hate that our bands aren't in there. Our Def Leppards and Scorpions and Iron Maidens and Judas Priests aren't in there. And if it really didn't matter, we'd go, hmm, what? What are we talking about? Nobody cares. And we don't do that. So so I think we do care on, on – I think it offers some kind of validation. Like, yeah, the band I grew up listening to was this epic, special band um, anyway. Anyway, speaking of epic special bands, let's get on to uh, Armored Saint and John Bush. The band will be on tour in July, like I mentioned before, Poughkeepsie, The Chance, Montreal, The Petit Campus, and all kinds of other places where rock and roll is alive and vibrant. Their Symbol of Salvation album tour is coming up. The album, of course, came out in 1991, includes songs like Dropping Like Flies, Rain of Fire, which, hmm, are we going to argue that maybe that's one of their greatest songs, Rain of Fire? Possibly. Possibly. Um, I don't know. 
I'll throw that out there and, and Twitter me at, at Mitch Lafon and tell me if you think that that's their greatest song or one of their greatest songs. Band, of course, should have been huge. They had all the elements. They had the songs. They had the players. They had the front man. Um, you know, Dave Pritchard, of course, passed away, which prior to the Symbol of Salvation recording, which, of course, um, you know, God, you know, God rest his soul or, or, or God bless him. But um, the band, the band had everything it took to, to be this huge thing. John, of course, went off and did uh, Sound of White Noise with Anthrax. And, and I have to say, I'm glad he did. What a great album. I mean, what a great album. He brought a, a, a renouveau, a, a new energy, a freshness to Anthrax. And uh, listen, glad that Joey Belladonna is back. I'm happy for that. But those albums that he made with Anthrax, um, great stuff. And by the way, it's funny how when you know John Karabi made an album with Motley Crue, everybody said, oh, it should have just been called The Crue. It's, it's not Motley Crue without Vince. Nobody ever suggested that Anthrax with John Bush should have been called anything else but Anthrax. Nobody said, oh, should have been called Basket Full of Puppies. Yes, here's a new Basket Full of Puppies album, Sound of White Noise. You know, Nobody said that. It's strange how some bands get guff and others don't. You know, you look at, at Whitesnake, which I just mentioned, uh, and I say this somewhat facetiously, but they've had 93 different members, and it's still Whitesnake because David Coverdale's there. Kiss change a couple of members, and oh, it's not really Kiss if Ace and Peter aren't there. Or Motley Crue changed the singer. Oh, it's not really Motley Crue if... It's just funny how we do that, you know, and even the Scorpions, love the Scorpions, but they, they've gone through a, a few personnel changes as well, and nobody says, oh, it's not the Scorpions anymore. But, of course, Kiss, they, it's not the real Spaceman. Anyway, oh, us fans, we are, we are uh, passionate, devoted, and uh, possibly just a little crazy, honestly. I, th I think we're all just a little bit on the borderline of cuckoo. Um, anyway. Here is the one, the only, from Armored Saint, singer John Bush. We are speaking with Armored Saint's John Bush. They are heading out this summer on a Symbol of Salvation album tour, I guess, for the lack of a better word. Always, always a pleasure huh. to speak with you, John. Um, so let, let's... Nice let's you, yeah. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this because, you know, Symbol, of course, is one of these great metal albums of 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 yesteryear and we've never sort of heard the entire thing before so just talk to me about this it starts by the way july 10th in poughkeepsie new york at the chance which in itself is a very historic uh venue but uh talk to me about putting together this tour and and why go out and do an album tour of symbol of salvation well um it's funny you say we haven't heard uh any you know something like this from armor chain and we've never actually even played all the songs from this record so there will be some some learning to do on our part little homework we have like about three songs or so that i don't think the band's ever played from that record so uh we're we got to do some of like that or homework but um it's gonna be fun you know this record i think has an emotional connection with a lot of our insane fans it's the one record in our career that kind of almost didn't happen and then it finally did um it, it came on the heels of um well it started out where you know we made our first three records with chrysalis records 
um, March of the Same Delirious No Man Raising Fear. And then we then we ended up getting dropped from Chrysalis um, when we were all about 24, 25 years old, which is funny because like, I remember people going, you're over, you're over. And I'm like, I'm not even 25 years old yet, man. I was like, damn, we were lucky we started when we were pretty young. Um, and then, and then, so we we knew we had no record deal, and then we found out that Dave Pritchard had leukemia. So we were in this serious no man's limbo, uh, very fragile state of a band. And at that point, then we just kind of said, well, you know what? Since the future is uncertain, let's just kind of write and not really worry about what we're writing in terms of, you know, direction and style. Let's just kind of write as though we're like this free falling kind of species. And, um, and it was really, it was, it was just, uh, it was very liberating probably at the time to do that, even though we were in a, a kind of a fearful state because we didn't know what the future held. Um, so we wrote all those songs. Dave eventually had an opportunity to get a bone marrow transplant, and he did take that chance because he was an adopted kid. He didn't he didn't have any siblings, so at that point, having leukemia was a very serious um, disease, even though it still is now. But it, there's, they've been a lot of inroads in, in, in helping people live with leukemia. But at that point, 1989, 90, it was you know it was pretty serious, and um, he ended up having a bone marrow transplant. The bone marrow transplant didn't take, and he ended up passing away within a couple of weeks, which is you know, obviously quite traumatic for, for everybody. Um, and so then we were lost, like, what are we going to do? Uh, we had a guitarist at the time working with us that we didn't really want to carry on with. So we you know, we were like, okay, well, we're, we're bass, drums, and vocals. What are we going to do? We have all these songs. So the, the philosophy is to rally around uh, the kind of the family atmosphere that we always had as Armored Saint. And we got Phil back in the band. We got Jeff back in the band. And then we said, we're going to make this record and we're going to carry on. And the record was, the, the music was, was something that, you know, we knew was super powerful, emotional. And so we said, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's make this record. And, and that's what we ended up doing. And I think that made this record very special for, for all Armored Saint fans. And, um, you know, something that people were just, you wanted to really get behind. It was kind of like a Phoenix rising circumstance for us. And, and that's, and that's, you know, where we kind of left off with symbol of salvation. It's just, you know, I think it's a real unique record. It's, um, it has a lot of songs that are songs that are, um, you know, kind of hopeful. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's songs like another day that, you know, kind of touches on whether or not, you know, what the future holds, tainted past, a little cynicism. We still have some powerful classic Saint Rockers like Rain of Fire, Dropping Like Flies, um, unusual kind of bluesy songs like Truth Always Hurts, which, you know, we kind of always were felt like we could write songs like that because we had Over the Edge in the past on Delirious Nomad. So it was a real diverse album, and, and it's the record that kind of happened that was uh, unsure that it was going to happen. So... It, whether it's the best Armored Saint record, I always let the fans decide that kind of stuff. But um, it is a record that I think is very emotional for a lot of people. So if we're going to do a, a, a kind of a live, you know, in its entirety record, that seemed like the logical one. Plus, we're trying to record a lot of these shows, film it, and make a live DVD, which is something we've never really done, like a, a proper live DVD of a concert. So that all kind of made sense as well. Plus, we're trying to we're trying to connect when hands down our last studio record to a new studio record which we're looking to hopefully get out maybe by the end of next year so 
that's why we're doing this. Sorry, long-winded answer, but there you go. No, and, and it was it was a great answer because you covered all my my following questions. But so so let me, right. <laughs> the interview's over. Interview's over. See, we're we're done. That was efficient. No, but you know, symbol of course it, it is the one album that that had this three disc deluxe reissue, and there's been a lot of attention to it. It was the last album before you took that hiatus, before you ran off and did and did Anthrax. But just quickly talk to me. Um, about Dave Pritchard, because when the news of him passing came and the leukemia, as a rock fan back there, where we were all sort of in our 20s and we all sort of felt invincible and, and rock was going to go forever. And, and that one sort of was like, oh, oof, OK. And, and it knocked the wind out of you. But as a guitarist and, and as a band member, talk to me about what he was like and what he brought to the band and what he brought to you in your personal life. And just talk to me about Dave a bit. Well, Dave was amazing. You know, his red hair kind of symbolized himself. He was he had this great, vivacious personality. He was very funny, super awesome artist uh, as far as drawing and stuff. Big sense of humor. Um you know, he was a goofball and he was underrated as a guitar player. You know, I think he was, he took a lot of the style from like Michael Shanker and Yuli Roth and he was very soulful playing, um, very, very emotional as a player, uh, creative. Uh, like I said, I think he was extremely underrated um, and creative songwriter. Um, and, you know, when we found out about his illness, it was, you know, the thing about Dave is they never really kind of, he had this kind of acne issue a little bit. So when he found out it was because he had to, he was trying to get this acne medicine to help with his uh, acne on his face. And he had to take this blood test to get it. And that's when he found out that he had leukemia, which was just devastating, but he never really ever made it an issue. His whole thing was like, I'm going to beat it. I'm going to beat it. We're just carrying on. And you know, there'd be times where it'd be like, you know, we're all, young guys would be getting hammered, you know, at a party and I'd see Dave and he'd be hammered and I'd be going, God, should he be drinking? And, but like he, that's his life. He was wanting somebody, he, he was wanting to, to live this just full life. And even though he died at 26, you know, I mean, he certainly was cut short, no doubt about it, but he lived life to the fullest. He lived every single moment of his 26 years. And I think that that's the thing we could take with us. Um, you know, I I think that he just was somebody who really embraced living life to the fullest, and and it was uh, motivating for all of us, and still is. And it's weird today, like, you know, somebody, one of the guys will play something, and and it will be like, whoa, that sounds like Dave. And um, it, I think his like his aura. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm pretty agnostic in my spiritual beliefs, even though I really am. I just, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big organized religion guy, but that's just me. But, right. um, but I do feel like when I, when I hear things that are played, I just kind of feel like he's there. He, he's there around us a lot and he's kind of hovering around and, it, you know, his, his, his being's there. And I think he's just always, you know, he's a six member. He's still, you know, he's there on stage with us sometimes and he's in the studio with us at times and we could just fill his aura. So, um, he was awesome. You know, I, I, I think that he was such a special person and, um, when, you know, he was pretty much the leader of the band. And then when he passed it, somebody, he had, somebody had to take over that leadership and it was Joey and he was just ready. Um, he just took it on, on his shoulders and there's no better leader in the world for a band than Joey Vera. He's, he's unbelievable. No, he's great. Uh, and he basically, he basically is like a manager and, 
um, booking agent and everything. And I felt bad at trying to, you know, carry some weight with Joey in some way. Like, let me do something. And, you know, he, he's kind of controlling. So he's like, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. I'm like, but I want to help. But, you know, but he just has it under control. And he, he became an awesome leader once, once day passed. And so, uh, oh, you know, we're great. lucky. You know, we're saying, Ernest and I, you know, because of because of this friendship that goes back to literally when when we were about eight or nine years old, especially with Joey Conzo and Phil and myself, you know, there's just a lot of history there. Um, I always say the beauty of Armored Saint is that it's the same dudes. It's it's really, I mean, people look at Jeff as like the new guy, but Jeff we've known since 1983 when Odin was playing shows with Armored Saint and Troubadour, and he was in the band since like 1989. So like. There's just a lot of history there with all of these guys. And um, when you go see Saint, you know, it's not like Joey Vera and four dudes, or John Bush and three guys, hired guns. It's the same guys, you know, and with Dave hovering around, you know. So I think that's the beauty of it. You know, I really, yep. I really champion that because I think it, it makes uh, seeing Armored Saint a little more special because, it's, you know, everybody's connected to those songs because it's the same guys and it's being played by the same guys what was his passing part of the reason you took a a a hiatus at that time was it just so emotionally sort of dis you know discombobulating that you went okay i mean why did you sort of say okay we're gonna stop right now we're gonna come back you know and you came back in 2000 with uh revelation which was a fantastic album but what led to that nine-year break where you just said i went Okay. Time well, out. I think what happened was that we made that record. It was a really uh, cathartic feeling for us to make that record. We did it with Dave Julian, who we loved. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time in the studio just bonding out of band. I know the Metallica guys were hanging around a lot. Lars actually was kind of almost helping manage the band a little bit because he had a girlfriend at the time who worked for Q Prime and he convinced her and another guy at Q Prime, it wasn't Cliff and Beer, but it was like they were kind of understudy guys to take us on as management. So we actually were managed by Q Prime twice in our career, which is crazy. Um, and didn't, and still didn't make it, you know, if you want to technically look at it, which is kind of funny. Um, but um, it, we just, it was, it was a real positive moment. But once we went on the road, perhaps we kind of had some, um, higher lofty goals than we should have and thought we were going to like, it was just going to, the record was going to break and we're going to sell a gold album and, um, you know, be rock stars again. And then it didn't happen. And, you know, maybe we kind of were a little delusional what we thought was going to happen. And then I think there was a little infighting. Maybe it's just, there was a collective kind of like, uh, uh, this weird relief after making the record. And, and then, I think that maybe distorted perhaps some of the relations at the time. Um, and and uh, it wasn't as um, warm as an environment as it could have been. Maybe there was a little uncertainty as to who was in charge. You know, sometimes in the early days, because we were so young, one of the negatives of Armored Saint was that we sometimes, you know, we're like five cheese and no Indians. That's a total example. I'm sorry, very right. Native Americans. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's very no, no, no worries. But, but, but let me let, let me put it this but, way. Uh, you know, you you then go off and do Sound of White Noise with Anthrax, which is by far one of the greatest albums they've ever made. Those songs are brilliant. But 
is, is there do you ever look back and say maybe I should have just stayed at home and by at home I mean Armored Saint and minded that store and and developed it and gotten right back and made another album in 93 and 95 and sort of built your brand and I know people don't like that term but that's what it is um should you have sort of stayed at home and, and minded the store and not run off with the anthrax guys well, you could ask that question and you could say, what if, but you know, I'm, I'm a person who doesn't really live like that. Cause it's just like, what's the point? You know, I could, ask, I could question many things in my life beyond music about well, what is, what would have happened if I would have done that? What would I, I can't live like that. I just refuse to, it's not, it's just not, to, you know, I don't want to look like, I don't want to look at life like that, you know, because it's just, what good is it? I kind of believe that everything happens and that's the way it is. So could have things been different? Absolutely. Metal Blade was certainly behind us. Uh, I'm sure Brian wasn't all that happy about me quitting, but also I think people kind of thought it was a, you know, a new chapter in my life. And, you know, obviously the band didn't want me to quit, but, you know, this is what happens in life. And, um, you know, I think that the, the Armour St. Bond is, is still there and it always was there even when I left. And, um, you know, came back and, and we kind of picked up where we left off. So, um, you know, did it set us back? Yeah, probably. Did we get set back? Um, even in the eighties from decisions that were made and things uh, and things that happened that probably weren't the best business decisions. Yeah. There was probably numerous mistakes made in Armored Saints, uh, career. Um, I could point out to several of them where you go, that was a big error. That was a big error. That was a big error. But you know, I can't, it, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't keep me awake sleeping last night. I, it's just not the way I want to live my life. It's just pointless. So, um, um, there's a lot of, you know, things you could probably uh, question, but it's just not the way life worked. Well, <laughs> I was well, meant to and, go and, and yeah, make those records, and there would be no sound of white noise if I didn't, you know. Or Yeah, you uh, can't question sound of white noise. That, that, Regardless of how things worked out with Anthrax, you have to be super proud of that album. I mean, it is just I'm, I'm proud stunning. of everything. I'm proud right. of all my records, you know, some better than others, but the beauty of, of my career is... You know, it's funny, I'll do an ant store, or we'll do an autograph signing, and somebody who's a big fan of mine in particular will bring all my records, and I always laugh when I'm signing, like, 30 pieces, which is, you know, the records, and some 12 inches, this and that, and I always laugh going, you would think I'd have a lot more money than I do, because look at all that, but, you know, that's just my way of laughing at it, but, right. um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done in my career, you know, like I said, certainly mistakes were made on um, and I can be honest about that, but what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? But now, now you mentioned you would have a lot more money, but you, you've actually done quite well. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of it, I guess, comes from the voiceover work, right? I mean, that that has been a boon. Well, that and, was great. It's been a little slow lately, although I am embarking on um, recording and I need to get back to it, actually. Um, Brian Slagle's audio book. I'm doing some of the portion of his book. Um, which I'm super honored about uh, in some of the interviews in his audio books. That's really been uh, cool and challenging. I have some audio issues that I needed to correct, but it's been fun. And I was honored that he asked me to do that. And uh, I need to actually get back home and do that tomorrow and pick up where I left off. Right. And, uh, I think want to be done. But yeah, I love voiceover. It's, it's, it's a great world. It's just uh, really competitive these days because a lot of big name actors have realized that, hey, I can do voiceover and make a lot of money and go to the studio in my sweat. So I'll do that. And so when you're competing against, you know, like Jeff Bridges and Gene Hackman and Robert Downey, you know, John Bush kind of, you know, is a little further down the, 
down the totem down the pole. food chain. <laughs> but that's actually yeah. that, that's actually kind of cool that you're doing the uh, the Brian Slagle book. Obviously, president and CEO of, of Metal Blade. Um, just, uh, really cool. I didn't have a lot of questions on that, but just just quickly talk to me a little bit about the process. I mean, do you really just go in and read the book line by line and then sort of fix it word by word, or or is or or do you have sort of um an amended version where you, you just sort of read, I mean, how does that work? I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, by... well, I'm reading, um, like basically paragraphs. And then if, if, you know, there's a blunder, I have to go back and fix the whole paragraph. So I'm doing it. It's funny. My whole, my home studio is actually literally in my son's closet because that's the quietest, deadest room in the house. So I'm sitting in this closet, quite cramped recording um, with, you know, one little light on and <clears throat> that's how I do it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging because if you, you know, I don't, I, I could probably go to a, like a legitimate studio and do it, but I want to do it on my time and on my terms. And when I have moments to do it, cause sometimes I literally have just like an hour of time to do it. So I'll go in and record it. Um, so I'm reading just like paragraphs at a time. And if you make one little mistake, it's ah, I got to go back and fix the paragraph. So a lot of the times you'll hear a lot of like, ah, you know, I'm going to go back and re- repair that, which is pretty funny. But um, I actually just recorded the whole James Hetfield interview and Betsy White's interview. So I'm doing, what I'm reading in the book is interviews um, with people. So that's, that's, that's of... my portion. I'm not doing the narration. Yeah, it's been gotcha. fun. That's cool. And, and of course, you know, now I'm picturing you sitting in your son's closet at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> reading a James. Well, no, I ain't doing it. Cause then I'd be waking him up. It's, it's in the middle of the day. And then you have to, like, you're going, what is that noise? And that's like the gardener with blowers and going, damn, or like, you know, some, some kind of the construction going on and a few houses down. And you're like, well, I guess I'm not working today or unless I want to go ask them to stop. But, um, you know, I have to kind of work around those things too. So, that's funny. great. That's great. Now, of course, uh, you know, the last album was the live album Carpe Noctum, and then you had Win Hands Down back in 2015. We're now 2018. Where are we in the process of a new album? I know you just mentioned that Symbol of Salvation might be a DVD, but where are we in terms of new Armored Saint music? We started working on some stuff. Joey actually wrote some stuff, and he used to give things, and, you know, the other guys would say, throw some throw their hat in the ring with some ideas and then we'll put them down on tape and um we usually make some pretty extravagant demos but we we kind of decided this time we're not going to get that intense on the demo making just so we can kind of speed up the process i mean look at it we went uh, even though we were kind of defunct as a band you know armor saint came out Re- revelation 2000 and then the next record was a little rosin 2010 and then we finally moved it out five years to when Hunts down in 2005 so we don't really want to, unfortunately, I do see father time. I'm, I'm pretty honest with myself as far as how old I am. And even though I feel great, um, I do realize my age. And, you know, so there's a slight urgency in terms of trying to hurry, but without sacrificing quality, of course, because that's number one. So I'd rather take time and have a record take, you know, come out a little longer than the last one and be amazing than go, okay, we got that record out in three years it's half as good as the previous one. I don't want to do that. So um, we thought when, when Anne's Down was just top-notch. We really were proud of that record. We thought we really pushed the boundaries for saying on that. So I feel like we have a lot to live up to, actually. So we, we need to 
concentrate on the meeting and, and have a somewhat sense of urgency behind it, but at the same time, not sacrifice quality. So that's kind of where we have, but we've written a couple things and I think they sound cool. They sound diverse and uh, uh, I'm excited about what we're doing. So, you know, look, in a, in a perfect world, we, we could get a record out sometime maybe by the end of next year towards the latter part and, you know, think, okay, that's pretty good. And it would still be over four years since we hands down, but you know, what are you going to do? That's, that would, that would be, that would be an improvement in terms of time right. for Armored Saint. So. Yeah, and and I certainly look forward to it. Now I know you're on you're on vacation today, so we're, we'll 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 keep this tight. But um, the the Anthrax discography, when you look at what you did with them, the Volume Eight, We've Come for You All, The Greater of Two Evils, Stomp, and White Noise, great great songs, and just sort of terrible that they've they've fallen by the wayside of live performance. Do do you see yourself? just getting out there with a solo band or even the guys in, in armored saint and just performing those songs again, just, just, and maybe not for yourself, but for the fans who just say, Hey, how can you let a song like only not be sung live again? Is that something you'd like to do or, or would do it just out of respect for fans? Uh, I'm open to the idea. I've talked about it. As a matter of fact, I just did a show with the guys from metal allegiance. Cause I sang on their most recent record. And then we did a show um, at the in conjunction with the NAM uh, convention here uh, in January, yep. and um, we played Room for One More. It was killer. Um, that was the first time I probably sang it in like 15 years. So um, I'm open to it. I, I, you know, my agent was bugging me about doing something, and then I said, okay, well, let's do something. And then I guess we didn't really get maybe some of the offers that we had hoped that we were going to get. So, um, which is humbling, but reality. So. I'm open to the idea. It's got to be the lead scenario. It's got to be the right musicians. It's right into the same, of course. Right. Um, um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to, like, I won't go out and do some long tour by any means with it, but I'd be open to some selected dates. And, you know, there's certainly enough material there that I could probably do a headline set, you know, if you combine all four records. Um, and there's some great material there, and I'm really proud of it. So, um, it's not like something I have to do tomorrow, but I'm Correct. open to the idea. I, it's just time needed to go by before um, you know, I was just ready to do it. And and I still believe that it has to be the right scenario. Um, I don't want to go just do it because I feel like, you know, maybe I get an offer and, you know, financially it's a good one or something. It has to be the right situation. Um, but I'm open to it now. And, I, you know, I understand why those guys don't play those songs. And I have no issue with that whatsoever, especially with Joey Belladonna. He's got a lot of material that he probably wants to play of his own. So it's not a big deal. I, do, I mean, I wish they would need songs for that sometimes, but I understand why they don't. Right. So it's no, no big deal. But um, Yeah, and, and, and no they, offense to them. I mean, it'll happen. Right. They, 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 they have I Joey and they have their thing. But it, it's just as a fan, I would love to see you come out and do like a 12 song set or even i don't know it, it, such great well, it'll, songs it'll happen one day i don't know where when how many shows but it, it'll happen it'll happen so there we go um the where and when the uh, armored saints say a uh, symbol of salvation tour with act of defiance the chance in poughkeepsie july 10th is where it gets started and you are in my neck of the woods at the petit cafe campus in montreal on july 15th i will be there and i will be well let me say let me say one thing that i'm so excited about playing not only montreal but because we haven't played in canada in years so an armored state always had i mean i can go back to the first tour we ever did 
well, when we played in Canada for the first time with Metallica lost, and that goes to 1905, very famous tour. And that was awesome. And, um, you know, we love, we love the cities and you know, my son plays hockey. He's a huge hockey fan. So that always draws a connection to, um, those cities. So, um, I'm real excited about doing that. Maybe he can come visit me because I'm sure he'd be happy to play and uh, just come into Montreal and tomorrow. Um, but well, uh, yeah, ha- really have him come no down. I, I know all the folks at the Bell Center will give you a, a uh, um, what do you call it? A, we'll, we'll, we'll visit the Bell Center together and, and see the home of the Canadians. Oh, really? Yeah, I know people who can who can help. So so let's do it. And uh, really, yeah. Well, the tour is in July, so obviously it's it's not hockey season. But um, damn, but it's, awesome. it it it's still there. I mean, uh, the last time out, uh, the guys from Tesla came into town, and we we took them to to visit, or I took them to visit. So it's very oh, doable. And awesome. since you mentioned Canada, why let, let's just plug July seventeenth, Toronto Mod Club. So you've got you've got your Canadian dates. It's going to be great. This is going to be great, yeah. and. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've played the Cafe Campus before, but it's right on a street called Prince Arthur, which is an outdoor walk street like they have in Europe where there's all the cafes and all the restaurants. So you'll come right down from the venue and you'll have these wonderful high class restaurants to have a nice uh, meal. It's going to be it's just going to be spectacular. It's just going to be a great. Oh, cool. That, yeah. sounds, that sounds really fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and I look forward to being there. So thank you, John. And uh, there we go. Uh, back to vacation. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Cheers. We'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn.